If you have your Bible, you can turn in the book of Leviticus to chapter 23. And as Jeff alluded last week, we're going to be slowing down through the book of Leviticus a little bit here. We're going to be taking smaller chunks. In context for Israel, these four or five verses that we read means a lot more to them than it does to us in four or five verses because of the fact that they already knew what, in our context today, what Passover and what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was. And for the study that we did last week in the Sabbath, they also understood that. And so in Leviticus, it seems to be very short and brief about these feasts, but there's a lot of context to these. And so we're looking to open those up and just kind of look at them for you over the next few weeks, well, with you rather, as we go through Leviticus. So we're in verse 4 through 8, if, that's, if you have a Bible in front of you, um, at least out of the pews, it's page 94 if you need one, and you can grab there and follow along in a few minutes as we read. If you haven't gotten the hint by now this morning, we're, we're looking at this word rescue, this idea, this theme of rescue for the believer And certainly that seems to be what's going on with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And I hope you see that as we look through the text this morning. So the question is this morning, what does rescue look like to you? If I ask you, what would a picture of rescue look like to you? Maybe it's five o'clock on a Friday night and you know you're about to punch out and then the weekend's coming and there's freedom for the weekend. Anybody really look forward to those five o'clocks on Fridays? Maybe Or maybe if you are a parent of young kids, it is five o'clock when you know your husband or your spouse is coming in the door and you are ready to hand those kids off and say they're yours for the rest of the evening. Any amens to that, right? We, We know what that's like. I'm sure a lot of us have experienced that, this idea of being rescued from our children and toddlers running around all day and certainly some days are worse than others, but they are a blessing. For some of you, it maybe is an uncomfortable situation that God has you in right now, whether that is health-related or family-related, something uncomfortable that you're not really enjoying, and so you feel like it would be nice to be rescued from that particular experience or thing that you are going through. God, rescue me from this, from this trial, from this situation, from this suffering. There's one story in the Bible, maybe two, but one that stands out to me, of rescue, of course, Jesus Christ on the cross, of course that, but before Jesus on the cross, the Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, where the nation of Israel is brought out of Egypt, freed from slavery. We know that story fairly well, most of us. That was truly a remarkable God story, if you read the account of the Exodus, where God shows His power over all of nature in bringing plague after plague on the nation of Egypt as they were enslaving God's chosen people, the Israelites. A remarkable story of rescue. There's even a greater display of rescue, that being Jesus Christ on the cross rescuing us from our sin as we've sung about this morning and it's been great to sing along and hear you sing of that this morning. We want to remind ourselves of that constantly. And we do that as we gather together this morning. The problem, though, with that word rescue is that we often don't feel like we need to be rescued, or we feel like we need to be rescued from the wrong things. The world doesn't feel like it needs to be rescued. 
those that, are, that have not believed and put their faith in Christ, they don't feel like they need to be rescued. And if they do, it's from something, from a situation, or it's from the wrong thing. What they don't understand is that their sin is really the biggest problem in their lives. And for you and me, our, our sin is the biggest problem. It's not cancer. It's not family relationships. It's not anything uncomfortable. It's not even suffering for your faith. Your biggest problem this morning is your sin. Whether you are a believer or whether you are not a believer, that's the biggest problem. And we don't get that. The world doesn't get, get it, and therefore they don't come to Christ because they don't understand that they need to be saved. And we, as believers, don't understand the effects of sin in our lives, even though we've been saved from the penalty of that sin. And so those who do not believe feel like they need to be rescued from something that's wrong. And even those who do believe, us as Christians, we struggle wanting to be and feeling like we need to be rescued from something that also we don't need to be, that we've already been rescued from is our sin. And so it is not our situation that God needs to rescue us from. But we'll get to that in a few moments as we walk through the text this morning. We know that we've been rescued, but we struggle in our lives to see how bad it really is as Christians, how much we've really been rescued from, that we are sinners in need of a Savior every single day, every hour. We think it's not so bad, right? We compare ourselves to other people and we go, well, I don't struggle with that sin or I don't struggle as much as so-and-so does and so therefore it's not quite as bad. I don't need to be rescued from as much as they do, right? And we start to compare ourselves thinking that the littler sins are not as big of a deal and don't need to be purged out as much as the bigger issue sins. And we do that to our own fault. Daily, by God's grace, you and I are always in need of Him. And so this morning we're introduced to the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was an annual feast that the Israelites practiced. And before, as we kind of walk through the text, just to give you a bit of context how we're going to do it. I'd like to go back into Exodus and just kind of look at it. I don't want to assume that everybody understands where Passover came from. And so we're going to go and look at the history of Passover. And then we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at what it says in Leviticus. And then from there, we're going to go to what does it mean for you and me today? Because we don't practice this particular feast annually uh, as the nation of Israel did. And so why is that? So if you would, in your Bibles, follow along as we read. Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. We could split these, these feasts off, and in some ways we will as we walk through the text. When we get to the application, we'll see application for both Passover and unleavened bread. But these, this feast was practiced together by the nation of Israel at the same time, Passover led into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. In your Bible, if you turn to Exodus chapter 12, that is where you find the 
the narrative account of the Passover and the first practice of it and God really uh, laying out for Israel what that looked like. So we're going to look at the history of the Passover as according to Exodus chapter 12. If you want to turn your Bibles there, you can see we'll have verse references as we go through. You can see in your outline, you can compare those just so you understand that what I'm saying is not what I think, but what God's Word, I think God's Word says for us this morning. And so in Exodus 12, the first Passover meal and the first week of unleavened bread was practiced by the nation of Israel. Where is Israel at in Exodus chapter 12? As most of you know, Jacob moved his family to Egypt. How did, he, how did Israel get there? Well, Jacob moved his family to Egypt when God miraculously took Joseph to Egypt because of his, the hatred that his brothers had for him, and God had a plan through all of that and brought Joseph there. And then what happens when Joseph's there for a few years? There's a famine in the land, as you know, and Jacob's sons come to, the, come to Egypt looking for food, and eventually Joseph invites his family to come and live there and be there with him. And so there's only a small family that moves to Egypt during the time of Jacob, but by the time we get to Exodus chapter 12, we're up to at least 600,000 men of the nation of Israel. That's how many leave Egypt. So we're up, up over a million. The nation of Israel has grown in size, and this is where we find them in Exodus chapter 12. But at this time, the Egyptians had made the Israelites slaves. They had made them slaves. And so God comes to Moses and he says he's going to rescue his people from this slavery. He's going to rescue them. He's going to take them to the promised land that God has promised and had promised to Abraham. And so the drama really starts with plague after plague. If anyone's ever seen the, the child sh children's show, like one of the best, like, you know, children's shows ever, the uh, Moses story, that's a great one. And, it, you know, as a kid, I always remember watching it and, and enjoying it. I think it was really cool, really neat to be, just put it to cinema. And yet, you know, there's so many options and ways to just dream about what God really did there. Like how miraculous was the power that was displayed by God when he went through the ten the nine different plagues bringing us up to this last one. How miraculous was that? What's the equivalent of that today? You know, a big thunderstorm maybe or a hurricane or things like that where we see nature and the power that nature has. And yet God displayed in, in Exodus His power over that nature. And so we bring ourselves to the 10th plague then, which is where Passover is instituted. Pharaoh had hardened his heart through all nine of the plagues as God brought them. And this final plague was going to change Pharaoh's heart. He hardened it up until then, and now he was going to change his mind. And so the first thing we see in the history of the Passover is that it was a judgment on Egypt. God was going to use this tenth plague to judge Egypt for enslaving the nation of Israel. And this plague was going to be judgment, and it was going to free the Israelites. And it was going to kill many, many Egyptians. As we read in the text, all of the firstborn of the Pharaoh, of his family, all the way from Pharaoh right to the man that was in jail of the Egyptians, their firstborn was going to die. And not even just the people, but even the livestock as we read. It was a wholesale judgment on Egypt for their treatment of God's people. And if you read in that account in Exodus, you see there was a great wailing a great wailing in Egypt. There wasn't a household that did not experience the effects of God's judgment on Egypt. There wasn't a household that didn't have a death. It was judgment on Egypt. The second thing we see in verse 5 and 6 is that a sacrifice was required at Passover. And in order to, as God instituted here, a sacrifice was required. A perfect lamb was to be killed in verse 5 and 6. We read of that. 
a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, things that we've already understood about the sacrifices in Leviticus we see here in Exodus. One sacrifice per household, or if the sacrifice, if that lamb was going to feed 10 people, maybe the Egyptians would get a few families together and they would sacrifice that, fam- that lamb together and then they would take the blood and use it together. And so Passover became uh, a time where families would get together maybe and make a sacrifice together as they sacrificed that, that they would then eat that sacrifice, which we come to shortly. But when that sacrifice was killed, the blood was then taken in verse 7 and the blood was spread on the doorpost, as you know in the story. The hyssop branches were taken and they were, the Israelites were to spread it across all the doorways. And there's a reason for that as we will come to in a moment. But blood of the sacrifice was spread and God is going to recognize that blood and that offering and that sacrifice made shortly. But the fourth thing we see is that the sacrifice was then to be eaten in haste in verse 8 to 11. All of the sacrifice was to be eaten. And if not, it was to be burned by morning. But follow along in verse 11 if you're there. Or make note of this verse. Read how the nation of Israel was supposed to eat this sacrifice. We notice it here. You shall eat in this way, with your garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So they were fully ready to go. Like, you know, fast food was, you know, right there. On the go. Right? Ready to go. That's a joke. It's, it wasn't where fast food started. This is much more serious. But I had to make that connection, I guess. Where's my mind at? (laughs) Food. They were to eat it ready to go. Why were they to be ready to go? Because God was going to act quickly in His saving of His people. It was going to be very quick, very swift. And we read about that when we get to the angel of death later, how quickly God judged Egypt. And so as they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for those seven days, they were supposed to eat something. But as they left Egypt, and this is where we kind of see the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they were to leave quickly, they were to have something to eat. They needed something, right? But you, if you know anything about yeast, and I don't really know much about yeast other than that you can buy it in a store. So, and that you, you use it to raise bread, I guess, right? And then it makes the bread taste good and fluffy. I asked Bailey last night, I said, well, you know, how does yeast work? Because apparently you can make your own. I don't, I don't know enough about it to know. All I know is that it's pervasive and that it affects a little bit of bread. And yet they needed food, but there was no time for the Israelites to let that bread rise and to eat that food. So there was to be no leaven. And if you read in Exodus 12, they were actually to take all the leaven out of the entire nation of Israel. They were to, to get rid of all of it, take it out. All of it was to be gone. And we're going to come back to why that's important at the end as we close. But they were to get rid of all of it. The sacrifice was to be eaten and then the food that they were to eat for that week was to be free of yeast. It was to be unleavened bread. And so that's where we see this meal and the seven days coming in. A reminder to the nation of Israel for seven days of what God had done, but also how God acted quickly in saving them. And so it was a seven-day celebration and reminder to them of what God had done at Passover. And then in verse 23 of Exodus 12, we see the angel of death come. And so at midnight, for for the Israelites, the angel of death came. God sent the destroyer through the nation of Egypt to all of the homes. And any home that did not have that blood of that sacrifice on that house, they were the firstborn of that home, they were killed. And as we know, every single home experienced the effects of this judgment. 
And finally, as we look at the history of the Passover, we see that most importantly, Passover was a picture of rescue, a picture of how God rescued his people in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 16, we read of that as well. It was a great rescue, the greatest one that the Israelites had ever seen and were ever going to see. And that is why it is such a central point in history for the nation of Israel and why the prophets point back to that and everybody because it is an awesome display of God's greatness and His power. And so the only response to that, we read in 27, is their worship of God. They bowed in worship to God because of it, because of what He was going to do. And so the nation continued to practice the meal of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was to be a continual reminder of God's rescue. And now we come to the text in Leviticus chapter 23 this morning. And as I said at the beginning, the details are so fine and so small because the Israelites, they knew all of this. Their their minds go back to Exodus chapter 12 and, and everything that happened. And so we see only a few verses on the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread because of that. But we know this is a a feast that happened together. Passover started it. Sorry, started the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days after the uh, Feast of Passover, the meal of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to go on for seven days. And we know, according to the text, that this happened in the first month, reminding the Israelites at the beginning of the year, as you start your year, kind of like when we do New Year's resolutions. For them, it was a little bit different. They reminded themselves of how God had rescued them as a nation and rescued them as a people and saved them and how God had worked. And that one week was to be set aside to then celebrate that and be reminded of that. And then we read in the text that the first and the seventh day were to be Sabbath rests. And in between on those seven days, in between that, there was to be meal, grain offerings made to God. And we know later on that the, all of the men were supposed to go to Jerusalem. This was a feast where the men came to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And so that is kind of how this, these two feasts were practiced together as they were done annually by the Israelites. So the first thing we see in verse 4 is that Passover was not optional. It wasn't something that you could choose to opt in or opt out of. Just like we talked about last week with Sabbath, with rest, there's this word in the text called appointed, appointed times. And we see that the feast of Sabbath was an appointed time, just as this feast, the Passover and unleavened bread, were appointed times, instituted by God. It's His idea for the nation of Israel to remind themselves of what... God had done. They were not to forget. They were not to forget. Oh, how often we forget. We live as if we've forgotten how much Christ sacrificed with His life and with His death on the cross. How precious He was to God the Father. We forget that. We forget that we've been rescued from the power of sin. Maybe we know, but we need to be reminded reminded that we don't live this reality out very often or as often as we could and should. This reality that we've been rescued. We live maybe as if it doesn't really matter all that much. Yes, God, I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful for it. But then the other six days of the week, it looks very different for us. And we don't live that reality out. Maybe we're not grateful. We're not truly changed by that reality. In verse 27, the only response to such a great act and such the great mercy of God is to respond in worship, is to worship Him, is to bow low and to worship God. So Passover and the Feast of Unleavened were not optional feasts. The second thing we see is that they were to be a public celebration. 
And we see this phrase, holy convocation, in our four verses. We see it a few times. In Exodus, it's holy assembly. God's people were to get together and they were to celebrate what God had done. That's what this feast was about. And you can't help but draw the parallel for us as believers as we get together, as we look now on Sunday, when we get together, we look to the cross, we celebrate that together. There's something different about doing that than just doing it at home every morning, something coming corporately and singing God's truth together and the gospel through song. It's a great thing to get together and to do it. And it says something to the world when we do that, when we celebrate God's graciousness and His greatness to us together. And then the third thing we see is that Passover was permanent. It was an annually appointed time for the Israelites to celebrate and to practice. And so in Exodus, when the children say, Mom and Dad, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? You can give an answer to them of what God has done. You can proclaim what God has done, the greatness of God and who He is. And we'll come to that in our last point as we recognize that Christ comes to fulfill this particular feast in His perfect life and death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So the Passover was instituted to be practiced right up until the death of Christ. And then the final thing we see in our text this morning in verse 5 and 6 is that the Passover prioritized God. It made God important. It put God on display. It elevated God, not ourselves, not our situation, not the, not the way that they were feeling that particular day, whether or not they wanted to celebrate it or not. It prioritized God. The Passover is a chance to pause and just say, look what God has done. Look how God has rescued His people. And we can certainly say that this morning. We can certainly say that today about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The reality is that nothing in your life and my life happens outside of God's sovereign plan. Nothing, big or small, there's nothing. Everything that you go through is because of, and it happens in light of the perfect will of God. Romans 8, God uses all of those things, but He's in control of everything. Even when you lose your wallet. Who's ever lost their wallet? Yeah, guys, maybe I'm the only one. And you're like, you know, why would I... It's just a wallet. It's somewhere. I just forgot it. You know, and my, my mom always used to say, you know, have you prayed about it? Have you, you know, and I'd be like, I don't know. It seems like a silly thing to ask God. Like, God, where's my wallet? Like, do I value God or do I value my money? Do I not want to lose that? Right? And it seemed like a silly thing, but God is in control of every single situation and, some, and circumstance that you go through, no matter how big, no matter how small it is. And yet, how often, with that reality in mind, how often we forget to give God glory and praise for the things that He does in our lives and for the things that He's doing and the things that He has done. We don't, we don't remember those things. We forget them. How often we do. We forget to acknowledge God's work in our lives, even in those little things. We take it for granted. We do not see it because we've actually fooled ourselves maybe into thinking that we are where we are because of something that we've contributed, something that we've done, you know, whether it's work and the wealth that we've attained or whatever it is, the accomplishments that we have, it's as if, as if I could have done those outside of the grace of God. We, we think that way, and that's why we don't thank God and are, and are not grateful to Him for those things often. And yet this feast, as they came to do it, they prioritized God. This was, there was just no other way this was going to happen in Egypt in Exodus 12 unless it was God. And that is the same for our salvation. There's no other way. There's no other way that we would have made ourselves right before God, trying as hard as we could to be righteous unless somebody died for us. A perfect sacrifice was made for us. And so it's an opportunity to prioritize God. 
And then we come to finally the implications of the Passover and unleavened bread for us today. And I want to try to get through these as quickly as I can this morning because I see I'm running low on time. Passover and unleavened bread for today. John the Baptist says in John 1, what does he say about Jesus? We read it in this morning. He says, he saw Jesus coming to him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John saw Jesus as a lamb, as a sacrifice. And the Bible continually talks about Jesus as the lamb. In Revelation especially, we're going to get to in a few moments. The first thing we see for us today is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, our benediction for this morning, Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. The only really explicit text in the, in the New Testament that says our pa- Jesus is our Passover lamb. The rest of it is the lamb. And we infer that that is talking and speaking about Jesus. But if that's the case, then is Jesus really worthy? And Hebrews 4.15 encourages us that it, he is worthy. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, and yet is without sin. Jesus was worthy of the title of the Passover lamb. He was a perfect sacrifice. I'd encourage you to turn to Revelation. I'd like to read a few verses briefly for you this morning. This picture of Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. Revelation chapter 5 is around the context of the scroll, and this is what it says. Then I looked in verse 11 of chapter 5, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's Jesus. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and even in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped Him. They worshipped Jesus for what He had done. Our perfect sacrificial lamb. We also see the Lord's Supper instituted. And this is application for us today because we practice the Lord's Supper. Jesus set Himself up in the Gospels when you read the account of that last night where He had the communion supper with the disciples. He sets Himself up as the Passover lamb. In the Gospels, you read that the crucifixion had happened during Passover. That's why they were in Jerusalem. And Jesus, what does He say in those Gospel accounts? This is My body. This is My blood poured out for you. My body sacrificed for you. Do this in what? In remembrance of Me. In the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make for them the next day when He was crucified. So Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a replacement for the Passover. The Passover was a picture, was a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do thousands of years later on the cross as He died, as He took on the sins of the world, and as He rescued believers and those who would come to know Him from their sin and making them righteous and making them right before God, eternally redeeming them. And so we don't practice Passover now as a memorial for what God has done specifically in the nation of Egypt as it was practiced there. We actually celebrate that that truth, those truths of His rescue through communion. 
And so that's not to say that a Jewish Christian could not practice Passover out of tradition now, certainly, as long as they understand that where it's coming from, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that and his sacrifice is now the fulfillment of that rescue. It's no longer necessarily looking back, but it's as that was a foreshadowing to it, that has now been fulfilled in what Jesus did on the cross. And so the Lord's Supper is certainly applicable for us as we think of Passover and unleavened bread. And the third thing I want you to see is that believers are rescued. We are rescued. Those who place their faith in Christ and His perfect sacrifice are rescued from their sin, from eternal death. Just like the nation of Israel was rescued from slavery. I want to briefly, as I've kind of cut through Hebrews 9, there's just a few words that I want to bring out for you this morning. So I'll read this condensed version of these three verses. But when Christ appeared in Hebrews 9 as a high priest, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not through the blood of goats and calves, the sacrifices that were made, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God died to redeem us, and He died to make us alive, to rescue us. Christ died to give us redemption, to free us from the power of sin. Romans 8, chapter 2, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, has been, you've been set free from the law, Right? to live for God. You've been made alive now. So the question is this morning, have you been rescued? Have you been rescued? Have you placed your faith in the only one who can save you from your sin and free you from that? And if you have, or maybe you haven't, the reality is still the same. You and I, we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. The consequence, the payment for that sin that we've committed is death. And God will save anybody from judgment who places their faith in Him. But the world does not think that they need that saving. They don't think that they need it. And if they do, it's from the wrong things. Christians, we've been saved from that, from sin, from the penalty of sin. And yet we feel like we need to be saved from our present circumstances, our situations, our sufferings. And Paul has something to say about that in Corinthians that would challenge us. For the non-Christian, you need to be saved from the penalty that your sin deserves. But for the Christian, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. What you need to be saved from is the presence of sin in your life now. Not the penalty of it. That's already been paid for by Jesus. But the actual the reality that, that, that you are still going to battle and struggle with sin in this life until God comes and gives us our glorified bodies and comes and returns and frees us completely from the effects of sin. So you don't need to be saved from your present circumstance. As hard as that is to hear and even to say to you, you don't need to be saved from that situation that you are going through. What does Paul ask the Lord three times of the thorn in his flesh? God, take this away from me. Take this away from me. He asks him three times. And what does God say in Corinthians about that? He says what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my, in my power is made perfect in your weakness, right? God uses those things. What we need in our situations is not to be saved and brought out of those things. We've already been rescued. It's to be yielded to the Spirit, to resist the temptation 
to go back to sin and to allow sin to be in our lives. And so finally, our final point then we come to is the fulfillment of Passover. I guess I actually have one more. Sorry. Uh, guys, come on. The fulfillment of Passover. This will be quick. The fulfillment of Passover. If you go back to the Lord's Supper, Jesus says something really interesting in verse 16. Here's what he says. I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You're saying, I thought Passover was fulfilled by Christ when he died. And there's this, there's this reality that it was, and yet there's this not yet of that reality that it hasn't fully been realized. And so what does that mean? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, two verses before what we just read, he says, it says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That reality has not been realized yet. God has not brought everybody into the fold, into his, into his kingdom as it would be because there are people that are not saved yet that are going to be saved. Otherwise, Christ would have come back and he'd be back already. So there's people that still need to be saved. And so this reality is, I mean, it's hugely applicable for us as we look to Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission where we are to go out. We are involved and we are a part of what God is going to do. We are, God uses us in our weaknesses and in our failings to fulfill what he's going to do in the kingdom. And that's bringing people from every tribe and every tongue to know him, to understand the gospel, to believe it. And so we can go into the world and we can know that we're being used by God as we rely on him to do that and to be a part of what God is doing. So it hasn't fully been fulfilled. And this is our final point, the application of unleavened bread. As we come to, I want to bring that feast into all of this because we've focused a lot on Passover. And just as we kind of wrap this up, the Israelites, as we said, they were to eat of the unleavened bread and, and this whole celebration was very quickly done and therefore there was no yeast in the nation of Israel. They were to go out on a pilgrimage, on a journey. God was going to take them out of Egypt and save them. And there was no time. So what does the Feast of Unleavened Bread mean for you and me? Well, it means that we need to obey God's will in haste. As God reveals His will to us through His Word, we need to obey it. You don't wait. We don't wait around till we feel like it to do it. We need to respond to God's Spirit quickly and obediently. There's no time for delay. God calls us to work with Him in our sanctification and to share the gospel with the nations. We're also reminded that we are a pilgrim people. Pilgrim, a pilgrim is someone who's on a journey. You and I are on a journey. We're on, in this process of being made perfect. Right? We're on this journey together with the Lord and the Spirit in us, and we need to contribute and be a part of that journey that God is bringing us through towards perfection in Christ. And so we ought to always be making progress, spiritually speaking, not being content with where we're at spiritually. Because we're on a journey to perfection in Christ. And then finally, we're reminded of the need to purge the evil that exists in our lives. You and I, we need to be rescued from ourselves. And this is where the leaven comes in. We know that leaven is something that permeates throughout all of the bread and affects all of the bread. Sin has that same effect as leaven. And in the New Testament, leaven is seen negatively as, uh, as a metaphor for sin. You and I know the effects of sin. We know the reality that it has on us. And the whole nation was to purge the nation during these seven days of that yeast. And we are to purge ourselves as believers of the evil, of the sin that is in our lives. Being active participants 
in purging our lives of evil. So what would that look like for you and me? What would that look like for us? The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder for us and is a reminder for us to, to self-examine, to put away the evil that is in our own lives, to look in our hearts and to put away that evil. Those seven days of celebration after Passover was meant for that. And you and I need these reminders. We need to come together weekly and, and gather to remember the sacrifice, remember how precious it was that Christ died on the cross for us, that we're free from sin, that somebody actually made a way between you and God, between me and God for our sin, because we are forgetful people. And so we get together on Sunday here at the church, we proclaim the gospel, we sing it to each other, we hear it through God's word. And the reason for that is for you to go out now and for me to go out now in the six days of our week before we get together again and celebrate it again and look to the cross again. And this is to give us a foundation to be able to go out with that in mind, that reminder. And it's much like the Passover and the seven days that the Israelites were then to remember the effects of what happened. And that's for us. As we remember the gospel this morning, we go out and we live out the implications of that. We remember the effects of the gospel as we go to the nations, as we are in our work, as we are interacting with our family. We take these things because we need these reminders. We need to be constantly reminded of these things every week. Would you pray with me as we close this morning? God, thank you for eternal redemption. Thank you for your son and for his sacrifice. We thank you that Jesus is worthy of the title of being the Passover lamb, being our Passover lamb, and we are so grateful that he died for us. To remind us of this this morning, we've sung truths together, we've sung the gospel, and God, we recognize that there is nothing better than this truth in our lives, and we pray that as we go from this place this this morning and as we go into the different contexts that you have placed us, that you've brought us to, recognizing that you are sovereign in all those things that we experience throughout the week, We pray that you would help us to remember the gospel, to remember its implications, to remember how precious the life of Christ is in our lives and what he's done for us. Help us to worship as we go this morning. We pray this time would have encouraged us and blessed us and and just drawn our affections for you more and more and, and drawn us closer to you this morning. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.